you would, please turn to Isaiah chapter 64. Uh, Isaiah, sometimes called the evangelical prophet or the fifth gospel. Evangelical simply means gospel, good news. And Isaiah foreshadows the ministry of Jesus Christ, whom the four gospels are written about, even though he wrote about 700 years before Jesus. But Isaiah 64, if you're visiting with us, We've been going through Isaiah for a while. We'll say more about him later. For now, just know he's a prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God, his spokesman. He wrote 66 chapters in all. We're in 64. And uh, not to be too simple, but the smaller numbers are verses, smaller divisions to help us find our place. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab the black book in the uh, chair rack in front of you. And uh, the Pew Bible, even though we don't have pews, and uh, turn to page 623. It's also printed on the inside cover of the bulletin. Without further ado, let's read God's word from Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? And afflict us so terribly. Thus sends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would give us the ears to hear all that you have to say to us. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is sin and is it a big deal or not? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's a question and answer teaching tool that's part of our official doctrinal standards, says this, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, that's a good definition. It covers sins of omission, omitting any want, any lack of conformity to God's law, God's demands. It covers sins of commission, committing a particular sin, doing what God forbids us to do. 
but it's not necessarily what the world believes. Maybe it's not what you believe, whether you're a Christian or not. But if we don't understand what sin is or why it's a big deal, then we, don't, we won't understand why Isaiah is so worked up about it in this passage. We won't understand why we need Easter Sunday. The late R.C. Sproul said, sin is cosmic treason against the creator of all the universe. But even nine years ago, there was a survey done. And back nine years ago, when church attendance, church membership were higher, this survey found that 49% did not agree with that de definition. 49% did not agree that even the smallest sin deserved damnation or eternal punishment. You might be saying, yeah, but Christians believe that, right? And you see, that's just it. 49% of Christians surveyed didn't agree with that. 82% of all respondents didn't agree with it. Now that's what the data says. But social media and so many other things paint a different picture. On any given day, someone believes that some sin, some transgression of the law of common decency deserves damnation and then some. Just this week, one debate was this. Is it acceptable for one female basketball player to talk trash, to brag, after beating another female basketball player? Very important philosophical debates of our day that deserve the utmost anger and attention, right? And that's exactly what it, it achieved. It's exactly what happened in response to it. And what you didn't see much of in the public square was forgiveness. See, most of the world's actions in anger, forget their words, their survey responses, show that we believe in sin and that it deserves punishment. Isaiah certainly believed in sin. He was grieved by it. He wanted deliverance from it for him, for his people. And he asked God for it. What would God's answer be? What could wash away Isaiah's sin? What could make him whole again? What could shield him from the sins of the world? We see that answer, those answers unfold in four scenes this morning. The first scene, the first thing we see in the text, number one, the urgent need of a holy God. The urgent need of a holy God in verses one and two. Let's read those again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Who is this guy and why is he talking like this? You might wonder, well, Isaiah prophesied primarily to the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel's kingdom split at some point. And the northern kingdom was mostly unfaithful to God. So for that reason, God allowed them to become weak politically, militarily. And they were defeated. They were exiled starting around 721 BC. This is a few years later in the southern kingdom where Isaiah prophesied. Well, they were more faithful, more relatively. But even so, God spoke to Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry and he he said, I want you to bring my message to my people because my people are straying from my path. They're rebelling and they're too blind to see it. So Isaiah did that. The first five chapters of his book, it culminates with six woes. Woe to those who call evil good, for example. These people must have been very messed up that he was ministering to. <clears throat> but in chapter six, you see 
Woe number seven. Seven signifies completeness in the Bible. When was it that Isaiah saw complete woe, complete sinfulness? It's when he saw the Lord in all his holiness. And then when he took a glimpse at himself. Isaiah chapter six, verse four, it says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I, that's Isaiah, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now you've met Isaiah. I don't have time to read all of Isaiah 6, but just know that God heals Isaiah. He atones, he cleanses the very sin that he confesses. And then out of that healing, that cleansing, that forgiveness, God sends him to preach the good news to others, the same good news that saved a wretch like him. But God warns Isaiah, they're not going to listen. Not most of them. No matter how much you preach, but there will be a remnant, a small group who remain faithful. That's who I'm sending you to, Isaiah. One article on the book of Isaiah says it this way, the remnant will find you. Those who hunger and thirst for the good news, they will find you. They will find the message. They'll hear it, and it will be like a treasure in a field, like a jewel, a pearl of great price. You will sell all you have to get it. Now, of course, Isaiah 55 it invites God's people to, to come, it says, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. The gospel, the good news, it's actually, it's free. The gift of salvation and forgiveness, it's free. The feast that we so desperately seek is free. The point is not that it's going to cost you everything. The point is that if you understand what God truly offers, then you would gladly sell all you had to get it. If you had to, and don't you see that urgency, that desire in verses one and two, rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah's begging God to move in this mighty and powerful way because the, the people need nothing short of that. And God, this is nothing beyond his ability. There's a past precedent that we'll see for this. You think if we had seen that, if we had seen God's glory full strength like Isaiah, would we realize our own need of intervention? Would we realize our own unholiness? Would we realize our own inability to fix our problems, let alone those of the world around us? Would we too be saying, oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear apart the heavens and come down, come down. Show us, Emmanuel, God with us once again, because we need it. We urgently need a holy God to come and save us. And what would happen if he did just that? Well, that's what we see next. After the urgent need of a holy God, we see second, the awesome presence of a holy God. The awesome presence of a holy God, verses three through five. Again, I had Isaiah or others, had they seen God come down before and act in these awesome ways? Well, in fact, they had. Look at verse 3 with me. Excuse me, I'm still in Isaiah 6. Let's get back to 64 there. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence from of old. No one has heard. 
or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Popular wisdom says something like this, all paths lead to God. Is that true? Is it true? And does, do all of those paths, do they offer forgiveness? Do they offer assurance of salvation? Do they offer security? See, most of that thinking is built on the idea that either people are mostly, basically good, and if they try harder, either they'll be good enough, or God, whoever that is exactly, he will be nice enough to just let them into heaven. That's not the God you see in Isaiah 64. This God is way more angry about sin than Twitter, for example. And this God is way more forgiving than Twitter or anyone the mountains, the nations, they quake and tremble at his presence. He's compared to fire, common biblical image for the presence of God. He's a consuming fire. He's a refiner's fire that purifies gold by burning away the impurities. This God is a serious individual. He's awesome. He does awesome things. He inspires awe like no one else. Awesome used to be one of those Buzzwords when I was a kid, now kids say things like dope or fire, straight fire. That's what the internet tells me because I'm not cool anymore. <laughs> but awesome used to be one of those words, so much so that one of my professors once said, you're allowed to use the word awesome one time a year to describe something besides God. One time, one time per year. God is awesome. He inspires fear, dread, awe both because of his, his power, his ability to punish and confront, and because of the way he acts for his people, even when they don't deserve it. Again, verse 4, from of old, no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. And the knowledge that God acts that way is what motivates Isaiah to keep praying, to keep begging for his presence. Most people think Isaiah wrote this section during the exile. Now we have to clarify that. Not the exile of the northern kingdom, those black sheep whom the southern kingdom looked down their noses upon. No, we're talking about the exile of the southern kingdom. The ones who were better, Isaiah's people. See, even the good people proved to be so rebellious that God had no choice but to send them off to reform school. Joking a little. Strict boarding school would have been a picnic compared to this, right? Leaving their home, the promised land, learning a new language and culture and customs, being forced to serve other gods. The books of Daniel and Esther illustrate all that well. But as God sent them into exile, allowed them to be exiled, he sent them with a promise, a promise that he would bring them back home if they repented, if they proved to be the remnant who remained faithful, the remnant who turned from sin and turned back to God, if they waited for God, if they did that, then the same awesome presence that made mountains tremble would make their enemies tremble as well, if if they waited for him. And that's kind of the problem. 
Because so often God's people responded to his awesome presence with a beyond, with indifference, apathy, continued sin. And that's what you see next. After the awesome presence of a holy God, we see thirdly the awful pollution of an apathetic people. The awful pollution of an apathetic people in verses 5 through 7. Again, Isaiah is extolling the, the awesome way that God, he intervenes for his people. He meets us in our need, but he transitions sort of in the middle of verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved. Again, he first talks about the way he works. He meets us when we remember his ways. Despite our sin, he meets us where we are. And yet, knowing all that, what did Israel do? What did they do? Even though they knew that he was angry because of their sin, they sinned even more. One author says, can such provocation, such deliberate, persistent offensiveness be met with salvation? Now, you may think that's twisting the knife, but Isaiah goes even deeper in verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The Bible tells us both here and elsewhere that sin begets more sin. Sin gives birth to more sin. It hardens us. It makes us callous. Experience shows us that too, doesn't it? Haven't you met someone who's been hardened by bitter experiences, who hasn't responded well, who's decided to be angry at the world, bitter, defensive, and not just defensive, but offensive, lashing out at others to protect themselves. Without God's grace, this is what happens to us. We get worse. We get worse over time. And sometimes, almost always, His grace keeps us from being as bad as we could be, praise the Lord, but without his grace, we would get worse. Without God's grace, we are, we would become unclean, it says. Even our attempts at righteousness or good works, doing the right thing, it would be like a polluted garment. What does that mean? Does it mean grass-stained pair of white pants at an Easter egg hunt? No, not exactly. I'll try to balance both clarity and a little bit of discretion by quoting someone who says, sin is like the stained claws of a woman in her menstrual cycle. Yes, that's what Isaiah is talking about. That's the technical term that he's using here. We all become unclean. We all fade away like a leaf. Our sin carries us away into more and more uncleanness like the wind to the point where our Moral abilities render us unable to fix our problems, to cover our own sin, to call out to God. Verse 7, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. We don't even try to take hold of God. This is what we become in our sin without the grace of God. Now, let's clarify here. The point is not Christians are still pathetic and miserable and can do nothing to please God. That's not the point. Now, Christians are still flawed. We still 
struggle against remaining sin. Romans 7 makes that clear. And as we become more aware of our sin, as we, we see the sin that was already there and we see it more clearly, we may even say, like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But we should also say, thanks be to God, because he will deliver us. We should also say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we should also realize what Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16 says, that God is pleased to accept the sincere good works of Christians, not because the works or the motives are perfect, but because he looks upon us in his son. He sees our imperfect good works. He sees them covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ our Savior. The point is not that Christians cannot do anything pleasing to God. We can please God through faith in Christ. The point is we cannot bring ourselves to God on our own, not by ourselves, not through any good work, which is like a polluted garment or like filthy rags. We cannot rouse ourselves to take hold of him. The point is that God must come to us because we're too far gone. Reminds me of a movie. Yes, most of my movie references are either kids' movies or movies that are at least 10 to 20 years old, so be it, but not long ago. I talked about uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which, uh, again, is the last Indiana Jones movie because that one with aliens never happened. Amen? And I'm withholding judgment about the new one that's coming. But at the end of that same movie, same scene, a little different emphasis here, okay? Indiana Jones' father, I believe his name's Henry. It's Sean Connery. He's been shot by one of the Nazis. He is the world's foremost expert on the Holy Grail the mythical water of eternal life, but he's been shot. He can't walk through the labyrinth to get to the grail, to get to the thing that can heal him. So the only thing he can do is sit and wait for someone else to bring the healing water to him. And I think that's something like the picture that Isaiah is painting for us. Without God's grace, we are so polluted so apathetic that we need someone else to come to us. We need a savior to come to us because we can't come to him. So where is our hope? Well, it's in these final verses. It's in the questions that Isaiah asks. Because after the awful pollution of an apathetic people, we also see fourthly and finally the unanswered question to a faithful God. The unanswered question to a faithful God, verses 8 through 12. Now it ends with a question that doesn't start that way. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. <clears throat> We're your people. We're all your people. You called the nation of Israel, O Lord. You, you called us to be holy. And yes, we failed, but we are your people, he's saying. We're the clay, you're the potter, you're the potter who created us, and you can recreate us if you want to. Don't be angry forever. Don't remember our sin forever. Don't you promise us that in Psalm 103? And then he goes on in verse 10, you're holy Cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house 
In other words, the temple, the Lord, his temple, where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. See, this was reality, not metaphor, not exaggeration. After the exile, foreign armies had come in. Then they worshiped other gods, so they didn't care about Israel's holy monuments, their temple. In fact, it was one of the ways that they demoralized a defeated people. So Isaiah calls attention to it to rouse God, to, to appeal to his pride, his name, his honor. He's implying, God, won't you deliver us? God, don't you care about your holy city, your holy temple? And then comes the question in verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Interestingly, we don't get an answer in this passage, do we? And so this is a prayer that we can turn to when God does not seem to be answering us, when God seems silent. But God did not stay silent forever after this prayer, did he? No, first, God brought his people home from exile. Years later, King Cyrus of Persia, one of the kings who was ruling over them, he was on a religious toleration kick. So he sent the Jews back home to their land to rebuild their temple, their city, all those things. And then years later, God would give a second and a greater return from exile. He would send a better savior, one who was way better than Cyrus. He sent a prophet, a priest, a king. He sent his son who would obey in all the ways that his people failed, who was like us in every way, yet without sin. And yet he became a sin bearer for all of his sinful people. And he died upon a cross, a painful, shameful death that a criminal deserved. In fact, one of the soldiers who witnessed it said, truly, this was a son of God. The next day was sad. Easter Saturday must have been a colossal bummer. Seemed like God was silent. But then the next day, the third day, he arose by the power of God. The first Easter Sunday, the disciples were shocked and then they were rejoicing. And Jesus appeared a few more times. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says it this way. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time when Paul wrote that. You know, with that many people, that's kind of hard to falsify, isn't it? And eventually Jesus ascended back to heaven, but not before saying this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth in Acts chapter one, verse eight. That power, that Holy Spirit, of course, comes one chapter later in Acts chapter two. Thus begins the spread of the gospel, which starts in Jerusalem, which echoes out to all the Jewish synagogues and the far-flung far flung places where all the Jews had been previously exiled. And it echoes out to the ends of the known world in the Roman Empire, and it's still echoing out today in your hearing and in mine, because we are still a sinful people living in a sinful world where we still urgently need a savior to protect us from the world and from ourselves. And praise the Lord, we have a savior whose awesome presence can shake us to the core and bring us to our senses. 
Earlier I said, without God's grace, we're like a dying man, someone who has a fatal wound, who doesn't even have the strength to reach out for help. We have to wait for someone to come to us. It's very true. But if you've begun to pray like this, if you have an inkling of this cry, this plea in your internal monologue, Lord, rend the heavens and come down, then it's evidence that like Isaiah, God has already begun to cleanse you. Rend the heavens and come down, O Lord. Will you keep silent? God did not stay silent. Not when his people were in exile, not when his son, our savior, lay buried in a tomb on Easter Sunday. Isaiah's question did not stay unanswered. So the only real question remaining is this. Will you cry out like Isaiah or will you stay silent? Will you cry out? Do you need the savior to rend the heavens and come down to intervene in your life, to shake you like an earthquake, to cleanse you like a flood? He is still the God who acts for those who wait for him. He is risen. He is risen indeed, and he still revives those who were dead in their sins, the rebellious, the self-righteous, the weary, the wandering, all those who say, rend the heavens and come down. Come down to us, Lord, and lift us up to the heavenlies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and what you do is good. We pray that with every last bite of food we eat today and every day, that we would taste and see that you are good, that today is a day that we did not deserve, but it's a day that's been given to us as a gift. Father, we thank you for the life that we have. We thank you for the life more abundant and free that can only be found in Christ our Savior. Would you help us to take hold of that which is truly life through faith in Christ? If we haven't done so already, oh, Father, let us do so right now. If we have done so, then let us give thanks every waking hour we have for all that you've done for us. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen.